I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, a quick note. This episode contains discussion of sexual abuse and violence. Please take care while listening. Just because landmark education isn't mixing Flavor-Aid, Kool-Aid with cyanide or stockpiling weapons or branding people with the initials of Werner Erhard does not mean that they are nice. Rick Ross is the founder of the Cult Education Institute and an exit counselor. What he does is commonly referred to in pop culture as deprogramming. Make no mistake about it, based on the complaints that I've received and what I have experienced in dealing with the carnage, the, the wreckage of landmark education over the years, that landmark education hurts people. And they hurt people through their training, through their influence. Ross is a hero to many people who know someone who has gotten in too deep with all kinds of influential organizations, some of which, but not all, could be considered cults. I did interventions to get two Waco Davidians out of the Branch Davidian group led by David Koresh. I've done interventions to get people out of Scientology, out of uh, Nexium. Uh, And I've also done interventions to get people out of landmark education. Ross tells the story of one man he counseled out of landmark, a doctor. He says the doctor had become obsessed with landmark and was trying to get other doctors at his practice involved, too. The doctor's wife was getting concerned. She had done landmark, and she didn't like it. She thought it was strange. But her husband, the doctor, was all in. And uh, she felt that this could lead to divorce. And so that was when she reached out to me. And all of this preparation and planning was done without her husband, the doctor's knowledge. And then I came in one morning while he was reading the newspaper and drinking a cup of coffee as a total surprise. Initially, Ross says, he was having trouble getting the doctor to engage. I was bringing out research and articles about uh, Landmark education about EST, Earhart Seminars Training. And the doctor, who prided himself on research and study, uh, was just not even dealing with it. And I remember at one point, uh, the wife uh, in the intervention broke down and she was just crying really hard. And the husband, the doctor, looked at her and he said, Why are you crying? And she looked at him and she said, I didn't realize until this point just how brainwashed you really are. And then he looked at me and said, what do we need to do to end this? And I said, well, I I think that what your wife wants is for you to agree that you will not go to any more meetings or any more social events or anything that has to do with landmark education. And uh, he said, agreed. I'm out. I'm out. And about three out of four of the people I work with will come to that conclusion. 
Landmark says that its programs are not harmful in nature. They sent us numerous expert opinions on the matter. They write, Landmark does not present risks to the health, free will, or well-being of its participants. And, Landmark's programs and Landmark itself do not engage, or even attempt to engage, in any sort of mind control, brainwashing, thought reform, hypnosis, or thought modification whatsoever. We should also note that Landmark has sued Rick Ross in the past, though they eventually dropped the suit. Landmark is a private, for-profit company owned by its employees. There is a CEO, but no real figurehead, which, if you ask Rick Ross, is important. Landmark education, in my opinion, uh, today is not a destructive cult in the sense that the one single most salient feature of a destructive cult is a totalitarian, all-powerful, charismatic leader that is ever-present, that is, if you will, the hub of the wheel of the group, the center, the focus, and who becomes an object of worship. I think, in my opinion, Werner Erhard once occupied that position uh, when, when Landmark was known as Erhard Seminars Training. Erhard Seminars Training, you'll remember, was more commonly known as EST. Landmark maintains that they are a distinct company from EST, differing in focus and material. They just own the rights to EST technology and draw on its legacy. Just floating the idea that Landmark, or S before it, is a cult could land you in hot water. Landmark is notorious for threatening lawsuits against people who write about it. In fact, when we first started looking into Landmark a couple years ago, their lawyer sent us an 18-page document that included legal warnings and preemptive corrections to anything we might say about the company. One of those points on page 11 Landmark's programs are mainstream, personal development, and cannot legitimately be termed a cult or cult-like. And neither Landmark nor its programs are spiritual, religious, cult-like, or sect-like in any way. This has been confirmed by numerous experts, they write. Landmark uses the fact that its trainings are so pervasive and mainstream as evidence that it's not a cult. And a little spoiler here, I agree with them. I don't think it's a cult. But over the course of my research, I began to see the extent to which the ideas Landmark draws on might still be harmful. Ideas that came under scrutiny after a series of controversies and scandals 30 years ago. I'm Kelly Loudenberg. This is The Beige Room, part two. Whatever happened to Werner? By the mid to late 70s, Est and Werner Erhard were claiming to have trained tens of thousands of people. They'd been featured in the New York Times, People, Time, Cosmo, and on NBC News. Our Sunday profile is about a man named Werner Erhard who insists that he can help people lead happier and more fulfilling lives. They'd given trainings inside San Quentin prison and helped inspire the movie The Wiz, according to one of its producers. They were an institution. But they had also developed skeptics. One of the most popular depictions of Est was in a 1977 Burt Reynolds film called Simi Tough. 
It featured a mocking take on Werner's training. I want to share something. I just peed in my pants. And it feels good. (laughs) Many in the media were becoming skeptical, too, including a radical lefty journalist we met last episode named Fred Gardner. In 75, I was working for an alternative weekly in San Francisco. I was a reporter for the San Francisco Bay Guardian. I got fired from the Bay Guardian. It was the first time I'd ever been fired in my life. It was an attempt to organize the Bay Guardian into the newspaper guild. And they assumed that I was the ringleader, which I, I wasn't. I was kind of left of the, the unions by then. After Fred was laid off from his newspaper job, he got this wild opportunity. It was a gig with private investigator Hal Lipset. Lipset was a famous PI at the time, known for cutting-edge surveillance technology, theatrics, and a whole range of colorful clients. I'd only been there a, a couple of months, and, and one day he came to me and he said, there's a case I'd like you to work on, and it's got to do with Earhart Seminar training. And I said, oh, who's the client? Because I would not have worked for Werner Earhart. And he, he said, it's a wealthy Nevada businessman who has lost a loved one to Werner. And it was plausible because Werner had a reputation as a swinging dude. They were making a tremendous amount of money, and many of their acolytes were rich people. And this is like the greatest opportunity <laughs> that any radical journalist has ever had. And so what did you what did you proceed to do? Well, Hal had enormous resources. He had a big retainer on this case. It was a big budget and they could get anybody's garbage. This was, people were not so security conscious back then. Not everybody had a shredder. People didn't think like that. It was a very different time. And so I said, get the S office garbage and the house garbage for me for a couple of days, and I'll go through it and see what I can find. What Fred found was tax information. Information suggesting that Est had set up tax shelters using offshore corporations to avoid paying taxes on all the money they were making. Fred wasn't surprised. He had always thought Est was a con. He was happy to prove so, even if it was to the benefit of some wronged businessman in Nevada. So he went to deliver his report to Lipset. Then I was putting it on Hal's desk, and I noticed the note from David. David was another investigator at the office. And the note from David suggested that the client was really Werner Earhart. Why would Werner Earhart have hired you? That's one of our producers, Eric Minnell. They were on the brink of becoming huge. They were already making millions of dollars. And Est was going to go to a much higher level. This, they, they wanted to be in the, in the school system. They wanted to be in the Army. They were on the brink of this huge advance. And I think it's standard procedure and to you know if you have the the money to kind of clean up your past how did you feel when you found out that it was actually Werner Earhart used i'm not going to be played like that you know as we say in new york fuck me fuck you it was outrageous the day came when i was alone in the office and i said to the wonderful receptionist, Dorothy. Dorothy, get me the S-file. I acted like I had the authority to request that. And she went down to the basement, comes back with this big file, and sure enough, Werner had hired Hal, 
Fred says he read the file on Erhard and decided he wanted a copy for himself. The Xerox machine in that office was in a little room with a bay window overlooking the driveway so that if I was Xeroxing and Hal's Porsche appeared pulling into the garage, I would have about a minute to put everything back in the folder and return it to Dorothy. And I Xeroxed away the documents I considered most relevant. I was Edward Snowden for a minute. I go home that night and I find Jesse Kornbluth in New York and I call him up and I say, you don't know me, but I know who you are. I say, I've been looking into Werner Earhart's past for a detective agency and I understand you've got a piece in the works. He was calling me to tell me that he had been hired to re-report my story to see who I talked to and find out so that those people could be neutralized or at least Werner would know. Jesse Kornbluth was a journalist, mostly writing investigative pieces for places like New Times. He had gone through Werner's trash and he had three boxes of documents that maybe I'd like to fly out to San Francisco and look through. I don't really believe in matches made in heaven, but talking with Fred, a California leftist muckraker, and Jesse, a New Yorker with tabloid flair, it's hard not to think there wasn't some higher power at work. Because Fred hated the people mm-hmm. he worked for. He was just, it was a gig. And he got that it was a scam. Jesse says he went through the documents and put together how Est seemed to be getting too big for its own good. And how Werner was controlling every aspect of the organization that bore his name. Commanding a level of intense loyalty and sacrifice from his inner circle. He also uncovered numerous complaints by staff about the unusual sometimes invasive and distressing ways that Earhart controlled his company, even down to allegedly managing his staff members' sex lives. This was always going to be Werner's problem, the problem of massive success. And that's the kind of success he wanted. I mean, he said, oh, I, I want S to disappear into the environment. I don't want any credit for it. My name is unimportant. Nonsense. On March 19th, 1976, Kornbluth published his piece in New Times Magazine. It was called The Führer over Est. Führer is spelled in German. In the piece, he wrote about the tax controversies, the private investigators, about Est dropout numbers, and about Erhard's exercise of power over his employees' personal lives. Here's an excerpt from the piece. Employees are told, stay in communication with Werner about your relationships whether they involve fucking or not. Be especially conscientious about communicating about relationships which involve fucking. Apparently, S-staffers may sleep with anyone they want, as long as their committed partners are not also on staff. They may even sleep with fellow employees casually, except those with whom you work directly unless you already have a screwing relationship with them which Werner knows about. Fred Gardner, who was working for Lipset, got the impression they knew he'd talk to Kornbluth. Came rolling off the press late at night in New York City. And first thing in the morning, there was a dead yellow bird lying on my doorstep. And I thought, maybe it's time to move to Sonoma County. That was the marker. You know, that was the line in the sand. You'd have to ignore a lot to say you loved Est after that. Earhart did later win a lawsuit against the IRS and was never charged with any tax improprieties. 
One thing I've come to learn about groups like EST, groups with charismatic personalities that offer life-changing results, is that it takes more than financial scandal to change people's opinions of them. That's true of churches. It's true of fitness empires. It was true of self-help seminars in the 70s. In spite of Kornbluth's piece, EST carried on. It wasn't that nobody cared about a supposed tax scheme. But if millions of people were being saved, why worry about taxes? For much of the 80s, S continued to grow, expanding and evolving its programs, targeting new and diverse audiences. The celebrity endorsements continued. In 1984, they rebranded as The Forum, reportedly a retooled, kinder, gentler version of Est. Billion-dollar corporations hired him to share his ideas. By the late 80s, Earhart was claiming Allstate Insurance and Monsanto as corporate clients. The other thing I've come to learn about groups like Est is that there are often two narratives coexisting. The first is what we see in public, the success, the growth. The second is what things are like behind the curtain. In Jacksonville, Florida, David Miles led the first weekend, Ron Zeller the second weekend, 97% attendance, 85 NFL. This is a clip from an internal staff conference call in 1988. We obtained this through court files in San Francisco that were made public during one of the labor disputes Earhart's company dealt with. By 1990, alarms were going off at the company. There were internal discussions about two people who had taken the seminar committing suicide. Here's a clip from another staff conference call. There's an alarming number of well-being issues, from people being a little sick to people being dead. Nikki Meredith was a journalist in the Bay Area who started investigating the group around this time. She would eventually write a series of articles on Earhart for the Marin Independent Journal. There were the employees that were upset about being mistreated, asked to work an inordinate number of hours, and not treated very well when they did. Since February 1st, we've had an alarming number of serious well-being problems throughout the enterprise in both our participants and on our staff. The man leading the call is Steve Zafron. He was an executive at Werner Earhart & Associates at the time, one of the many iterations of the Landmark Forum. He says in the calls that the problem is not that people are working too hard, but that they are trying to mimic Werner's ability to incorporate the teachings into every facet of their lives, and they aren't doing it right. A quick note here. There are some beeping sounds in this recording. There's been an enormous amount, this is my view, an enormous amount of misrecreation, of observing the way Werner works and how he talks about his working. Just give it up. Just let, just surrender. Surrender to being productive and well, and one doesn't come before the other. He then gives the new policy for time off, essentially two weekends a month. Other than regularly scheduled vacation time, no staff member may schedule more than two sets, two sets of two consecutive days off in a month without prior approval from the division operating officers. You can have as much as two sets of two days off. People think it's a democracy. It's not a democracy with respect to certain policies. This is not a democratic process with respect to certain policies. I declare them, you follow them. Charlene Aframau was a mom and veteran trainer. She'd actually been Werner Earhart's trainer in Mind Dynamics, the program he'd taken that had inspired him to start EST and then the Landmark Forum. I'm not going to do those policies. 
I am not. And you can fire me, kick me out. I am not going to live those policies. What are you, what are you going to do? I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to do what I know works. Send me home. Let me go home and unpack it. Take a hot bath. At the time, the company issued a statement, as reported by Nikki Meredith. They denied the accusations, saying that virtually all of the thousands of employees who have worked for Earhart have been satisfied with their employment. That this suit was the result of a few disgruntled employees. I was consistently surprised by Earhart and his company's ability to weather the storm, especially when I heard what happened next. In 1990, I'm now working for Vanity Fair. Very different story. Very different audience. It's the hottest magazine really in America at that point. Investigative journalist Jesse Kornbluth, again, in New York. And I get in a plain brown envelope, no return address, a set of documents. And these are depositions that were that later sealed in the Earhart divorce case. I'm not the only journalist who gets this. I think there were four others. And I think it's logical that the people who sent this to me were Scientologists. When Earhart developed the S training, he took much of it from other self-actualization groups, among them Scientology. In fact, the Church of Scientology eventually placed Earhart on a list of SPs, or suppressive persons, a sort of enemies list. Yeah, so you get these these depositions. Depositions. What was in them? Well, I mean, they're about, you know, wife beating, and apparently it went further than that. So I fly out to San Francisco, and we meet on his boat, and he couldn't be more jovial and more open, and he doesn't know what any of these things are about. He says, you know, people say I'm failing. They've been saying I'm failing from the beginning. Does it look to you like I'm failing? And of course, he looked great. The boat was like 65 feet long. I'm sure there was some major art on it. So I go back to New York, and I, I write this piece, uh, 19 pages, double-spaced, and I hand it over to Tina Brown, and it gets rejected. 60 Minutes was working on it, and Tina Brown was afraid that 60 Minutes would scoop us. Mm. So the piece got killed, and I then sold my research to 60 Minutes because they were the only buyer. I didn't arrive at the opportunity to make the world work for everyone by figuring out how to do it. On March 3rd, 1991, 60 Minutes aired an 18-minute piece on the many personal controversies surrounding Werner Erhard. This piece, I should say, has itself been the subject of much controversy. A supporter of Erhard's went so far as to write a book about it called 60 Minutes and the Assassination of Werner Erhard. On WernerEhrhard.com, there is an entire page dedicated to inaccuracies about Werner, and the 60-minute story is among the first items addressed. There were reports CBS had pulled the story from its archive, but we found that it's still available. A producer on the piece told us he had no knowledge of a retraction. While most of the sources for the piece maintain their statements, one of Erhard's daughters did later recant. She filed a lawsuit against another outlet that published some of her claims. We won't be airing those specific claims here. In the 60 Minutes piece, the producers talked with former S members. Did it feel like a cult to you? 
because I would never have believed that I could be a person who would wind up in a cult. I thought those were the people down at the airport, you know, with the tambourines. And yet, certainly mind control was involved. They talked to Earhart's children from both his marriages. The aspect that I was the most interested in is that the daughters talked about. Journalist Nikki Meredith. When they saw their mother choked by one of the staff members. They even talked with the employee, Dr. Robert Lazalier, the one who claimed to have choked Werner's wife. Why'd you choke her? To scare her into confessing. It's like, why do, you know, why do people torture other people to get, to get the truth? They were having a family dinner, and Werner accused Ellen of adultery, and she was being forced to confess this adultery that Werner accused her of. It sounds almost like a chokehold. He said that he could feel, as he had his hands around her throat, he could feel her body go limp. And again, it wasn't because Werner did it. He never ordered anything specifically. What did he say? Did he say, but Bob, you're going too far? No, 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 he didn't. See, he didn't stop. No, no, I was doing what he wanted me to do. It was, my God, like a, it was like a nightmare that I could have gone that far with, with wanting to please, wanting to get approval from, wanting to get love from another human being to do that. The most damaging part of the piece were allegations of sexual abuse. Deborah Rosenberg is one of Werner Earhart's daughters from his first marriage. She's never spoken publicly about her father before, but she told us that her father sexually abused her. I don't have a problem saying that it happened. I don't like describing it, um, but I don't have a problem admitting that he molested me. How old were you? I was 16. Earhart denied these allegations at the time and has done so consistently since. This is the response Earhart gave to a newspaper, which 60 Minutes aired. Just plain not true. Just plain not true. And anybody who would say something about it's got to be sick. Earhart and his wife would go on to get a divorce. Earhart told the L.A. Times, quote, Ellen and I, from my perspective, had a very successful marriage. She came to the place where she felt in order to be herself, she really needed to be on her own. She couldn't do that in the circumstances of our life together. Earhart has spent much time in the years since answering questions about these allegations. They have come up time and again in stories about Landmark and profiles of Warner. He has consistently maintained his innocence and has never faced any charges. My reputation was destroyed by 60 Minutes, he told the New York Times in 2015. Much of the family has reportedly since signed agreements preventing them from not only talking to the media, but speaking about their life stories publicly at all. Just before the piece aired, Erhard gave away his dog and left the country. He moved to Russia. He also sold his company to some of his employees, and that group would become what we now know as Landmark. What happened to Werner and how Landmark survived flourished even after the break.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. After the 60 Minutes expose, Werner Erhard left America for the former Soviet Union. He eventually sued CBS, but then asked that the suit be dismissed. About a month before the 60 Minutes piece aired, he sold his company to several employees who changed its name. Its core seminar eventually became the Landmark Forum. By all accounts, the product was effectively the same. The people, the trainers, were largely the same, and the reach and impact was the same. For almost two years, Werner Erhard was out of the limelight. He'd gone from being the most famous self-help guru in the country to reportedly living in Russia and the Caribbean. His ideas continued to spread, but separate from his charismatic, controversial personality. Until Larry King. Welcome to Larry King Live. Tonight. On September 8, 1993, Erhard called in for an hour-long interview on Larry King Live. Whatever happened to Werner Erhardt? His personal transformation training called EST and its successor, The Forum, helped define the 70s and 80s. It was all about seizing control of the show. The show starts with Erhardt's satellite streaming in from Moscow. Erhardt has consistently said it was not a self exile to Russia, that the entirety of the 60 Minutes reporting was false. And so, King begins the interview with perhaps the most obvious question. Why did you run away? Why did you go and why aren't you back? Well, Larry, I've chosen not to come to the United States at this time uh, because uh, being in the U.S., I'm just too easy a target for the campaign of harassment uh, being waged against me by the Church of Scientology. Again, Scientology. Erhard felt, with some good reason, they were after him that they were responsible for much, if not all, the negative publicity he'd been getting. It's not exactly what you'd expect from a guy whose career was built on the premise that you were the one to blame for your own problems. But I digress. What, what, to your knowledge, have they done against you? Well, Larry, besides uh, some personal harassment, they've mainly focused their uh, actions against me in the media. 
they uh, were they had agents out looking for disaffected ex-employees and they found a few and managed even to involve a few members of my family in making allegations against me and a couple of members of the media, I say irresponsibly, uh, aired those allegations. It's a strange interview. In some ways, everything seems totally normal to the extent that living in Russia to avoid the Church of Scientology is normal. Erhard is calm and collected. He still has the Vitalis look. The hour-long interview ends with calling questions from viewers. By my count, there are eight callers with questions for Erhard, and they are almost universally supportive of him. Hi. Uh, Hi. I'm somebody who's taken a lot of the programs and gotten enormous value of them. I'm a college professor, and yet I still sometimes find it difficult to, uh, to say to people why it is the programs produce such an extraordinary result for people of all walks of lives. Can you help me? Werner. Uh, I know you've made an enormous difference in the quality of life for people in all areas of the world. Werner, hi. How are you? I did the training back in 1981, and I did get a lot out of it. I wanted to acknowledge you and thank you for the work that you had done. And First off, we all send our love and we miss you. I think there's a song, you know, you have to know when to hold and you have to know when to fold. This is Rick Ross again, founder of the Cult Education Institute. Werner Erhard was uh, the perfect player. He knew when to fold and walk away from the table. And because of that, he's a very rich guy uh, that's living well. And I think he's, he's one of those people that was, was called a cult leader who got away and ended up doing uh, very well materially. And I think he's an example of uh, someone who had the savvy, the, 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 the wherewithal, the discipline, the control to know when to fold and when to walk away. Can you, can you what's the biggest difference between now and then? Uh, Landmark would like you to think that it's est light and that whatever was wrong with Est has been corrected and Landmark is its perfected product. But I disagree. I think that the at the core is the same philosophy. And so I really don't think that the, the essence of it has changed. Uh, I think it's, the, it's, it's still an, or, an organization and a curriculum that I just could not recommend to anyone for anything under any circumstances. In response to our contacting them, Landmark's lawyer writes, while Landmark owns the right to the S training, the S program was retired in 1984, more than six years before Landmark was founded in 1991. The Landmark Forum and the S training are distinct, differing in their focus, material, methodology, and delivery. It's worth noting, the CEO of Landmark Worldwide one of the employees who purchased the company from Werner Erhard, is Harry Rosenberg, Werner's brother. Growing up, I constantly saw family members who were having trouble in their life, financial, medical, emotional, get seduced by the latest shiny snake oil of a self-help book, 
supplements, audio tape set, or MLM network. They'd latch onto it like a life raft. But instead of helping them, they just sank further into chaos. This instilled a bit of suspicion in me about all kinds of one-size-fits-all philosophies, groups, and businesses. I kept thinking about Earhart's philosophy, about the freedom that can come from accepting your circumstances, taking responsibility. But then I started to think about the flip side of it. It feels like a slippery slope. It's only a short walk from you're responsible for your reality to it's your fault. And then that dead ends into don't even bother changing the system. Work on yourself. The more I thought about it, the more I felt like I was seeing that philosophy everywhere around me. That's when I remembered one part of that Larry King interview. Aside from just talking about Werner's past, King asks Earhart what he's up to now, now that he doesn't have Est. And Earhart says he's begun to pivot. He's doing less work with the general public and shifting his focus elsewhere. Uh, I've worked with uh, business leaders here to uh, work on transforming the corporate culture, so to speak. You know, in the old days... Uh, Boardrooms. Management consulting. Corporate America. How Earhart and Landmark made their way into the American workplace. And how you are almost certainly in the beige room right now, whether you know it or not. On the next and final part of The Beige Room. The Beige Room is reported and produced by me, Kelly Loudenberg, Samantha Culp, and Eric Minnell. Production and research help from Arlena Revelo, Darby Maloney, Janelle Pfeiffer, Chloe Persinos, and Kristen Torres. Editing by Leela Day, Joel Lovell, and Darby Maloney. Original music by Jack Long. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Episode art by Jonathan Conda. Visuals and marketing by Grace Chen, Mora Curran, and Hadim Dang. Fact-checking by Francis Carr. Research support by Makiko Holy and Rob Bain. Legal support from Katie Ali Mohammadi at Donaldson Caliph Perez. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson De Rocher. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. If you'd like to share your experience with Landmark or Est, you can get in touch with us securely via email at thebeigeroom at protonmail.com or by signal at the number 213-306-6172. Again, 213-306-6172. Thanks for listening to The 11th.